Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is the final part of David's four-part series on the Messianic idea in Jewish history. This will be the final episode for 2021. The podcast will be taking a break now and will resume in February 2022. Let's go back into the Messianic uh, idea in Jewish history, which of which this is part number four. And I want to preface this in a certain way so that uh, anybody watching this now or anybody watching it in the future, if it is being recorded, uh, will understand that uh, what I'm doing in this talk. If you recall, in the first talk, we spoke about the biblical origins of the messianic idea. We spoke about the king of righteousness. We spoke about a new world order that was envisaged by the prophets and how those two kind of merged into what eventually uh, came out of the uh, second temple period and the Talmudic uh, period, which is the, uh, the idea of the, of, of the righteous messiah king. And we discussed uh, also in talk to the concept of the Messiah, son of Joseph, the Messiah, son of uh, David. And then in the third talk, uh, I extended that paradigm to discuss two different models, the Edomic and the Ishmaelic, as we cruised through various important messianic figures between the end of antiquity and the Renaissance, that period of about a thousand years. So tonight, basically, we've got to do the whole of the modern period or even the antecedents of it. And we're going to go from around the 15th century uh, right up till today. So that would mean approx the last five, six hundred years. And uh, some of you might be thinking, oh, (laughs) what false messiahs have we had in the last five, six hundred years? And it's a good question. And there are more than you possibly realize, but we're only going to touch on the ones that I think really make the most important contributions. And we're not going to therefore just touch on messianic figures. We're going to touch on people who started to really formulate what the messianic idea is from the engine room of Jewish thought, which is um, the embeddedness of Jewish ideas in history. But that said... I want it uh, to be understood that tonight I'm going to not uh, go into a lot of historical detail. I did mention this last week in relation to that talk, but this talk, I want you to see it more as a case of musings, uh, because I'm going to rely on the fact that this audience is capable of looking up some of the things I'm talking about if they want to go into the actual narrative historical detail, Obviously, we'll touch on some important and interesting aspects of that narrative, but really only in as much as it informs the idea, the messianic idea, as it's propelled forward in Jewish history. But I want to start in the 15th century, kind of in the 1400s, because once we are in the post-Zoharic period, and we did speak about the Zohar, last week and this new redemptive paradigm that the consciousness of the Zohar is going to bring into the world, 
by the time you get to nearly two centuries after the Zohar and its mystical apprehension of that cosmic world order have started to be absorbed in the Jewish world and that Kabbalites, and especially following the uh, not only the dissemination of the Zohar, but also of all its uh, attendant literature, and particularly the literature of the Tikkunim, <coughs> that were really trying to awaken the Jewish people to this, uh, this, what we might call the spirit of redemption. Even if it wasn't yet located in any one particular individual, the idea of the spirit of redemption, the Rucha de Purkana, as they would say in Aramaic, is circulating like, okay, we've been, it's well over a thousand years now, it's well over 1,200 years, it's well over all possible interpretations of how long this exile is going to end. And we're already, what, in the 15th century, according to the way the Gentiles count, and still, Adayin Loba, he hasn't come. Now, if you would recall last week also, we spoke about the kernel of this idea that the Messiah could actually accomplish redemption through magical processes. And so it started to be understood that, well, if, as the Zohar tells us, the true divine reality behind this one is the one the Zohar is telling us about, now that could be subject to manipulation. If everything that we're seeing is the result of divine forces playing out on some higher level, then we access the higher level... And for a boom, we do a little bit of Yiddish Kung Fu up there. And we could actually arrange the energy such that the Messiah will come. What we obviously have to do is we have to defeat the big enemy. Now, who's the big enemy if you're sitting around anywhere, really, in, uh, <laughs> in Europe? What we now call Europe, even, uh, in the 15th century. It is, of course, going to be Rome personified, or oh, Edom personified as Rome, and uh, spiritualized in the mind of the Kabbalist, of course, as uh, the uh, spark of Edom, which has gone through history to become Christianity. You have to defeat Christianity, and especially given that most of the persecutions of Jews at that time seemed to, if not directly come from the church, uh, just generally always have something to do with someone Christian uh, not liking Jews. And when you go a little further and you, you, know, you wipe away all your garden varieties, anti-Semitism and xenophobia, you might even find at the bottom of all that some theological core. And uh, therefore, uh, if you can spiritually defeat that theological core or in some way, <laughs> well, <laughs> more on that later, uh, and what developed, developed from there, obviously, and those of you who are aware of what I'm about to talk about will know, but um, we start to see a concern about the study of Kabbalah because people are engaging in what could really only be described as bordering on sorcery to bring about the betterment of conditions for Jews. And people started talking about the dangers of this and the dangers of indulging in messianic activity to try and hasten it and bring it about. This spiritual discussion, of course, has a parallel and a reflection in the physical world because obviously there are still people going, I don't understand Kabbalistic books, but I do know how to pick up a sword and a rock and fight for the land of Israel. And... 
we saw that last week as well. We saw that that's the whole Messiah Ben Yosef idea. But now we've got a different idea. It's still along the lines of Messiah Ben Yosef, but it is playing at some kind of high spiritual meditative level. And the famous stories that emerge from the 15th century are, of course, the stories of Yosef de la Reina. Now, I have spoken elsewhere about Yosef de la Reina and his dangerous poking around there in the spiritual forces regarding the messianic arrival and the defeat of Edom. De la Reina basically comes across as some kind of, of Jewish Faust. He makes a pact with the devil in order to defeat Christianity. And at the end of the day, of course, what happens to the man? He falls. He falls in. He became a big symbol of the dangers of trying to do Ugabuga to bring the Messiah. Right throughout the following centuries, we see, more, we see uh, quite a number of texts. Whether or not De La Reina is a historical figure, and uh, those who argue that he is uh, put his activities around about the late 1460s, around 1470. But it is possible that he is a fictive construct. We don't know. And maybe, uh, I mean, uh, Isaac Luria famously said, the Ari, we're going to talk about, um, the Arizal, uh, I think, once uh, pointed to a black dog that he saw and said, that's, uh, that's the soul of uh, Yosef de la Reina inside that dog. And uh, if you read enough Kabbalistic texts, you realize that being reincarnated as a dog is not, is not one of the ideal outcomes. De La Reina, in fact, had a very interesting vision because his vision was, and he's responsible, he really most of what we know about him is discussed uh, in, by a book that emerges around that time in a circle of people around De La Reina. Um, and, and, and what they're discussing are very interesting ideas. De La Reina's vision actually was, there was a theological core to what he was doing that we actually know about, and this is what lends credence to the idea that he may have actually been a historical figure or at le very least the construct of a historical figure that, ha that was thinking about these ideas. But their idea was actually to transform Christianity, check this out, 15th century, to transform Christianity to become a protective body of Israel. So they're envisaging a world order in which the Jewish people are in the land of Israel, doing their thing, bringing whatever divine light is to come into the world. Around them you have a kind of a shell, which is the Christian world, that is completely... Uh, whose who's, who's most important singular reason for being is to protect the Jewish people and worship God and respect the temple, etc. And then outside that, we imagine that uh, everybody else can be, um, uh, can be Islamic. That would be the De La Reina model. And... Uh, not all of that has transpired in history, but if you look at where we are now generationally, we're not a million miles away from heading in that direction. 
So when we say that De La Reina failed, we have to be very careful. As I've said elsewhere, maybe De La Reina didn't fail. Maybe he had to sacrifice himself in order to achieve what he achieved. It's all shrouded in mystery, but De La Reina is an important contribution to that idea. Unfortunately, however, other Kabbalists and other Jewish thinkers did not see De La Reina in a positive light, and many Kabbalistic books, and when we talk about Kabbalistic books, I talk about them not simply because they happen to be an area of specialization for me in Jewish history, but because they uh, are really, in the 15th, 16th centuries, they stand up and start becoming a serious part of the engine of Jewish thought. And De La Reina, in fact, was even blamed for the expulsion. Not only was he blamed for the delay of any redemption that might have come, but he was blamed for the Spanish expulsion. People were looking around for a reason, a mystical reason, as to why the tide had so radically and suddenly turned against them in Spain and why all the Jews were expelled from Spain over and Portugal <clears throat> at the end of the 15th century. Why had, why had that cataclysm happened? Untold suffering, not just from the expulsions, but of course from the Inquisition itself, felt for centuries, even till today, those traumas are still felt. Now why? Was that, was that the famous Chevlei Mashiach that the rabbis of the Talmud told us about, who said that, before the Messianic era, we would have to go through some terrible things. Well, how more terrible can it get than the Inquisition and the Spanish expulsion? They must be Hevle Mashiach. So they look for reasons as to why that didn't happen, why the Messiah didn't come in the wake of those tragedies. And De Lorena was one of those reasons. They said... People started trying to bring the redemption through inappropriate means. But what emerged from that period, and uh, it, does have a, it does have an antecedent throughout Jewish literature prior to this, but it starts to come to the fore perhaps more after, uh, after say, the 15th century. Although, as I said... I mean, we see it in the we see it in in the Tikkunim already. So it's in the 14th century, and we're seeing it in the um, and, we, and we even see it in parts of Tanakh. But the idea emerges that there is a special time. There's a special time, not just that. Oh, there's a special time that the Messiah is going to come out, and only God knows what it is. There are special. There, there can be special times that in and of themselves, those years are foredestined to be messianic years. And this special time idea became very, very current in the wake of the expulsions and the Inquisition. The, all the tragedies of the Jewish people started to be seen on a kind of a cosmic level. Remember that these are people that are reading the Zohar and even people like... Uh, you know, uh, Abrabanel and so on, who are thinking deeply about the Messiah, there's a special time. And that time would look like it's going to be now. So a prophecy emerged quite significantly that the Messiah would come in 1530. When I spoke last week, 
about Malcho and Roveni, I didn't even make mention that they happened to appear at a time when there was a prophecy about the appearance of the Messiah. But a figure like Rabbi Eliezer, Avram ben Eliezer Halevi, who I probably have not spoken about uh, in other talks, but who is a significant figure in this discussion because he, um, actually I, I, I have mentioned it a couple of times, but he is a significant figure in this discussion because uh, he is the author of a book uh, called Sodi Gali Razaya, Sod Gali Raza. Uh, the mystery of the revealed secret, and uh, you know, and and also the author of Mashara Kitrin, a book that I definitely have spoken about, which was this book. That, that, that's a book that was like the first Kabbalistic book ever published, and was published in Constantinople in the early 16th century, like around 1510. And there, he's basically telling you that well, we've had the Islamic conquest of Constantinople in 1453. That was the end, frankly, for Esav. They got conquered. Because, if I mean, if Christianity is Rome, but real Christianity, that's Byzantium. That's, uh, that's Constantinople. A symbol of the Christian world got defeated, 1453. We've also had the expulsion. And he shows how all these things are prophesied, and therefore, therefore it's now. And in Europe... I've spoken elsewhere, if you, when we spoke about the 16th century, we spoke about uh, Asher Lemline, the famous penitent who basically introduces one of the, or not, who reintroduces really, one of the cornerstone ideas of, uh, of the Messianic project, which is of course the concept of Teshuvah, the concept of repentance, the concept of self-transformation. And the Messiah is ready to come. It's true. All of those were the birth pangs of the Messiah. The Kabbalists are right. The Messiah is coming, but there is one last thing left to do. We have to, we, we have, we have to bring. And people took that in the year 1500 in Jewish history in Europe is known as the year of Teshuvah. They all got into it. You know, and, and of course, a lot of people are taking it very seriously. They're walking around flagellating themselves, but others take on other types of activities. There was a consciousness that, wait a minute, if it's really us that's holding us up, it up, then okay, we'll give this a go. And once again, maybe that ushered in an era that, uh, that brought about the changes that it brought about. By the way, the title of uh, the book by Avram and Eliezer Alevi is uh, Igeret Soda Geula. I don't know why I got mixed up with that. The Letter of the Secret of the Redemption. It's a similar translation, but I was thinking of something else. Um, and so those predictions that he was making together with Lemlin's movement, and then you bring uh, Molcho and Ruveni into the picture in the late 1520s, you have uh, a big uh, recipe for a great big... Uh, redemptive messianic gasplung. Then you can add to that. You can add to that all of the great mystics that are meeting in places like Salonika in the 1530s, and then that then is the huge impetus between the rise in the latter half of the 16th century of Tzfat 
And so there are direct connections between these energies that are moving around. Tzvat had a lot more to talk about, of course, than just the messianic idea. But the messianic idea, or rather the idea of redemption, was never far from uh, the mouths of any of the great teachers and sages of the Tzvat of the 16th century, whether it is of Moshe Cordovero or Rabbi Isaac Luria or many of the others uh, that were there at that time. Everything, the entire world was being read as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a cosmic reflection of the Zohar. And of course, by the time we get to the Ari, then we're about to have the big thought revolution that we have spoken about elsewhere a number of times. And that means that there is going to be a whole new dimension to every aspect of Jewish thought going forward, but particularly uh, those acute areas like the messianic idea. And, uh, I mean, when I say the messianic idea was never far from the Ari, you have to realize that everybody in Tzfat was engaged in some very special uh, projects. So if you take, for example, the foremost student and the foremost disciple of Isaac Luria, the uh, Chaim Vital, so Rabbi Chaim Vital himself, in his own diaries, which we have, uh, dabbled with the whole concept of the Messiah and am I the Messiah? And uh, interestingly enough, we might come back and uh, touch upon this a bit later in, in a few minutes, is that one of the uh, things that the Ari, ex that the, uh, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Ari, ex explained to Rabbi Chaim Vital uh, after he became his student is that Chaim Vital was complaining of various mental states he was struggling with. Um, he had, uh, he suffered from basically kind of three types of mental maladies. maladies. On the one hand, Chaim Vital was a very anxious person, and he writes about that, how he, how he always struggled with anxiety. Uh, that anxiety then would lead to depression. I mean, we say we, it's, it's nothing extraordinary. Uh, and he also writes, and this is quite interesting, uh, because his other mental, and, we, and it must be because he writes very coherently about his mental states, so he writes that he also had a mental allergy, malady that was, um, he struggled greatly with temptation to sin. That doesn't mean he did. It means that he was constantly struggling with it. And he, to him, that was a mental malady. And it was the Arizal who explained that in fact, and Chosef Chaim understood that his soul was very, very high. In fact, Chaim Vital, even I think before he met the Ari, he started thinking of himself, you know, maybe, maybe I'm the one. But I want to look at this fundamental difference uh, between with the way the redemptive idea is treated in the Zohar and what happens as we filter that through Lurianic Kabbalah. It's not and through the, you know, through the teachings of the Ari uh, and, and, and in Tzfat. Because uh, we, we, we obviously don't have time to go into the full picture of what the Ari is doing. But if we just make this remark, uh, and that is that, and, and, and this remark, in fact, is, uh, this observation is m m pro probably better expressed uh, in... Um, in Yehuda Liebes' article, The Messiah of the Zohar, which is a, which is a good article to read if you want to really understand uh, that, from certainly from Liebes' perspective. Um, but he's, uh, on this topic, he wrote a very, very, uh, an excellent uh, piece. But uh, basically, the Zohar 
is a the, the the redemption of the Zohar is still a historical redemption. It's spiritual, but it's a national religious historical tikkun. Effectively, we fix up history. We fix up the world order. Shalom al Israel. Everything's fine. However, after the Ari, the Tikkun is not, meaning a Tikkun, meaning a restoration or a, 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 a rectification, a correction that humanity has to make by arriving at the Messianic Age, is not simply, it's not a correction in national historical. That, that picture is just an absolute superstructural picture. When the, the, the point of the Messiah and the redemption here is that it makes a tikkun in creation. It makes a tikkun in the creation of the universe. The entire universe is waiting for humanity to get its act together. And the Ari says, and when I say the word universe... Whatever your picture of that word universe is, I'm talking way beyond that. And the idea, one, just one of the redemptive outcomes of the Ari's thought is the picture that as a result of the cataclysm that was caused, which resulted in the dislocation of the idea of God in the world and the dislocation of humanity from its proper stature and the dislocation of the people of Israel from their home, etc., etc., basically the dislocation of the presence of God from the world. When that dislocation happened and vessels, the vessels that contained the light of God fell into, well, downwards, the sparks of divine light and all divine light is redemptive and transformative but those sparks got exiled deep within and what emerges from the Ari and that I'm particularly interested going forward because I think this is one of the key points that underpins what we're going to talk about the idea that the Messiah is a special soul that special soul is a soul capable of redeeming the sparks a lot of the sparks have already been redeemed by great righteous and holy people throughout the course of the exile obviously those sparks have to be redeemed by the Jewish people in the mundane reality that surrounds them in order to move the universe towards rectification. But there's a, at least one spark that's waiting, possibly more, that's waiting for that very special soul that will be able to extract from the deepest recesses of the husk to rescue the last remaining spark so that it can begin its transformative journey of ascent from the depths of the klipa, from the depths of the husk, from evil, from the mundane reality, coarse reality, through, through the Jewish people, through the world, 
to transform the world. Now, who's that going to be? That's a very big order. But if you're the special soul, that's what your purpose is. And it is therefore not a shock to a lot of people that within uh, <laughs> over the course of the following century after the RE, while people are waiting for the special soul to arrive that's capable of redeeming those sparks, along comes an individual who says, and <laughs> what he says, you know, when we talked last week about the concepts of, um, when we talked, no, actually, in, in, I think it was in talk two, we spoke about, uh, yeah, we, yeah, in talk two, we spoke about Bar Kokhba, and we spoke about Rabbi Akiva. Yep. So there seem to be two types of acclamations going throughout Jewish history about the identity of a Messiah. Yeah? One is that other people come along, they look at an individual, and they go, like Rabbi Akiva did to Bar Kokhba. That's the Melech, that's the, that's the King Messiah. And then the other type of proclamation is where an individual says of themselves, Ana Mashiha. As we saw with Bar Kokhba in that, those famous Midrashim. And they had to come and explain to him why he wasn't. The idea that a person, a special soul is born at a special time, and therefore, by the time we get to the middle of the 17th century, we have a convergence of both of those those who believe that there is a special soul born and those who believe that it's a special time are all now on the same page. And therefore, when that individual appears, it's going to arouse a very, very great level of interest. However, over that time, and due to circumstances that we can't go into the narrative now, but except to touch upon where it's important... The Messiah that we get in the middle of the 17th century, and I, 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 I've spoken elsewhere also about the contributions of, of people like, uh, of the book Emek HaMelech and uh, written by Rav Naftali Bachrach to the whole redemptive spirit that is moving. But it's really emerging from the groundswell coming out of Tzfat and other places and the whole new order being put in place in the world by the conquests of the Ottoman Empire, by what's happening in Europe, Treaty of Westphalia and so on. A lot of different political things going on in the background, but certainly to the people at the time, and I reckon that we would have been among them, uh, us astute observers of Jewish history. Sometimes you say, well, it's easier to see what's going on in history than it is to see what's going on in our own time. But to the extent that we would have understood it, it looked pretty good as fulfilling the kind of conditions that you'd want for the Messianic period. That would be a separate discussion in detail why that would be. But let's just take it that 
people were pretty interested in the idea in the middle of the 17th century, not just in the Jewish world. A lot of rise in millenarian thinking across Christianity and so on. There was, it's, you know, oh, <laughs> things going on. But no one predicted that the Messiah that would come to redeem the sparks would actually be what we now could refer to as an antinomian Messiah. The word antinomian is a word you need to understand if you're going to look at anything to do with uh, the messianic idea in Jewish thought or in Jewish history. Antinomian means that your projects and your ideas and your whole agenda is in the complete opposite direction to the generally accepted mainstream thrust of culture. I mean, an example today it would be if someone was to make uh, uh, no, I don't even want to give examples. Um, antinomian thinking in the concept of theology means that you think the opposite of what you're meant to. But it does have a resonance for praxis, meaning that there is it's not just thoughts. You can do antinomian acts. And when antinomian acts get justified by antinomian thoughts, then they become very interesting indeed. We got an antinomian messiah, Shabtai Tzvi. Now, some would say, oh, no, no, you're only saying that, David, because you're buying into the rabbinic narrative. The rabbis are deciding what is nomian and what is not. Well, <laughs> I... I happen to, uh, I happen, well, you have to acknowledge that assertion. I mean, you have to say, at the end of the day, what goes forward in Jewish thought is what's contained in texts written in Torah. And who's writing texts in Torah that then get moved forward by the great-great-grandchildren of the people who wrote them? Or their friends. And statistically you'll find that um, in the world that are studying Torah texts, they're the ones that tend to have uh, a solid connection for the most part with their great-great-grandchildren. So that's Nomian. There are different views around Shabtai Tzvi, even within scholarship. And the classic view, which really emerged from Sholem, and I kind of like this because I'm, I, you know, there's other scholars have come along later and they've kind of uh, undermined this idea, and, and intelligently they've undermined it, but I, I, uh, I still like it. And that is that basically, <laughs> Shabtai Tzvi... He's not really the one that created this movement around him. 
it's all about Nathan of Gaza. Nathan of Gaza was the great propagandist. Nathan of Gaza was the one who came up with the whole theology behind anti you know, the Sabbatean antinomian messianism and what that means. That view, of course, then leads on to the fact that Shabbat emerged as a result of the dissemination of Lurianic Kabbalah. But I think the picture is a bit more complex. I think it's more complex. I think that Shabtai and Nathan are doing slightly different things. I actually agree with the idea that Shabtai did have more involvement in what was going on around him. It wasn't just he was sitting there, you know, <laughs> being him and that everybody else was running around doing all his infrastructure and dissemination and cult creation because it massive cult around him that also had various levels of access. I think that Shabtai might have had more to do with that than some historians claim. But I also believe that it's misleading to think that Shabtai is res responsible for the famous theological positions that became expressed and enunciated in his name over the following decades, and not just by Nathan. For example... Let's look a little at what this means. I, th I, 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 th I think that they looked at the messianic idea in slightly different ways. Shabtai Tzvi saw the cosmic realities of the Zohar somehow internalized in his own soul. Like, like Chaim Vital, who saw his soul reflecting, resolves maladies, reflecting cosmic uh, processes. The books that the Shabda Tzvi would have gone to would have been the Zohar. Shabda Tzvi wasn't running around talking about Lurianic thought. I mean, obviously he'd heard of the Irene, he'd probably looked at a few things, but Shabda Tzvi's world is the world of the Zohar. It's not the intricate dynamics of the Lurianic system. But Nathan, who by the way, almost unequivocally, would have probably been one of the greatest Jewish thinkers of the last thousand years if he hadn't got caught up in antinomianism. But Nathan, Nathan was deep into Lurianic Kabbalah and inspired by it. And huh, there's a unique theological interpretation that happens on a cosmic level for the soul of the Messiah in Nathan's writings. And it's worth just speaking about for five minutes because it actually does have implications for a lot of the uh, way in which the Messianic idea is treated going forward. I mean, and, and Nathan tells you, for example, I mean, it's hard to know exactly how one would get into uh, the theology of Nathan of Gaza, and in other lectures where I've had to focus on the historical narrative, I haven't been able to do this in, in, in any kind of detail. Not that we're going to do too much detail tonight, we're just for a few minutes. I want to go into Nathan to, so that you can see how startling, but also how seductive an idea it is. So, Nathan tells you, for example, that in the future or after the Messiah and kind of now, if we are now living the Messianic reality, that uh, there won't be, I mean, everything will be permitted to eat. 
Forbidden food will be kosher. Either because all the sparks have been redeemed out and it's not holding on to anything anymore, but also because we will have the power, we'll all have the power to redeem whatever sparks are in it or to transform it. That entire picture won't apply. On the one hand, we've got the Sabbateans poking around with bits of forbidden food because they want to live the messianic consciousness now. That's just the beginnings of the antinomian journey. We saw that. We saw that in Melbourne. <laughs> I'll name it. I'll name it. I saw it. I don't think you can find it now, but I saw it. We saw that in Melbourne a few years ago, certain people who were wanting to show that they are living in the post-Messianic and uh, made a video at a family picnic on the afternoon of Asarabha Tevet. Astonishing, astonishing uh, anthropological phenomenon that... Uh, got them into a lot of trouble. Apparently, uh, freedom of thought is not completely rampant in the Jewish community. I want to read you this passage here, which is a passage that, um, and, and I'm going to spend a couple of minutes on it because I really want to come to terms with this. It's a passage, it's not a passage from Nathan of Gaza. It's a passage actually from a, a Lurianic source text So it's part of the wider compositions of Rabbi Chaim Vital, of his master's teachings. And listen carefully, because this is, this is the part that really is critical for Nathan, this kind of text. For what reason did God make Abraham a composite part of that seminal drop. Um, I'll read the whole passage because Chaim Vital is always the best person to explain what he's talking about. Uh, the translation is mine from many years ago, so I hope it's smooth enough. The intention was because he, Terach, that's Abraham's father, had angered God by having intercourse with his wife when she was actually menstruating. So Abraham's father, Terach, is having sex with his wife when she's a nida. So already you're reeling from this text because you're going, holy manoli, right? The soul of the father of the Jewish people was brought into the world through a man having sexual intercourse with his wife when she was having her period. And that's something I need to know. And so God found a cause to deceive the external ones and to take out the soul of Abraham, peace be upon him, from their midst and incorporate it into that seminal drop itself. And because of this, the external ones could not prosecute his taking it out from amongst them since that drop was soiled. And on this it is said, who shall give pure from impure? For, and this is the key part, it is impossible to take out a pure soul from an impure husk unless he first inserts it into an unclean seminal drop. How do you bring the special soul into the world? By sin. 
by deceiving the husks. Spiritual light comes into the world through an unclean vessel. This is a really, 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 really important and impactful and profoundly influential theological statement. Don't just, listen, don't just let this one wash over. This is going to come back. Spiritual light comes into the world through an unclean vessel. The special soul, the holy special soul is captured from the klippah, from the, from the externalities or from the realm of evil, by trickery. And trickery means deception. It's getting very close to Delarena territory, but here we're going to actually direct it through sin. And so you have this prohibited intercourse with, of Terach with his wife, God succeeds to take the soul out of the hands of the husks. And therefore it's no wonder that the first sins you're going to, when you see a statement like, oh, well, you know, and then, okay, so what God's doing is really what human beings can do. You step it up to that level. It's kind of almost implied, if you want to read it that way, in the source text. Obviously, Chaim Vital would have just gone, Capactic, if any thought anyone was interpreting that is what he meant, I would imagine. But it is possible to interpret it that way, so it's no wonder that, of course, the sin that everyone's interested in <laughs> is sexual promiscuity. And, of course, that's a sin directly related to bringing the soul of the Messiah into the world, which is why we get attributed to the early Sabbat inner Sabbatean circles of ritualistic orgies, etc., etc. We are going to bring the redemption through sin. But of course, <laughs> Nathan then had the interesting job of having to explain why it was that the Messiah ended up converting to Islam. And of course, he didn't just have to explain why that last spark wasn't in Edom, it was actually in Islam, and which that's not a problem. He'd just do that in five minutes on a Sunday afternoon. Nathan could do that. But he really needs to come to terms with the whole concept of the apostasy. That, on one sense, fits into the picture we have already established of the Messiah having to come through the unclean, but it still needs to be understood what that represents. And in that whole famous drush that Nathan writes, he writes about uh, the relationship between uh, the apostasy of Shabtai Tzvi into Islam, which from a Jewish messianic perspective, would be considered the unclean. Not that Islam is unclean, but it's, we're talking on very high levels here, that he had to go through a, a type of klippah to redeem the last spark from Ishmael, is very similar, is exactly the same process as saying tachanun at the end of the repetition of the Amidah. When you fall on your face, it's a descent for the sake of redemption. 
And then we could do, you know, we've spoken about Nathan's mystical mission to Rome. So Nathan is still trying to dabble, even after the apostasy. Nathan was still in this framework that the special soul at the special time, mystical means. Shabtatsvi knows what he's doing. It's a theology that is very, very complex. Don't worry. He's the Messiah. He's coming back. And of course, the whole of the next however long, certainly the eight, most of the 18th century, are reeling from the events of Shabtai Tzvi. But it's been pointed out, I mean, and once again, you know, like uh, uh, the scholarship on this is, uh, is extensive, but one of the interesting ideas that emerges is that Shabtai Tzvi's messianism had a dimension to it that was not actually a political messianism. And it wasn't just a cosmic messianism because it wasn't so much a redemption of the Jewish people themselves, it was a redemption of the whole concept of faith. The whole concept of religion needed redeeming, needed transforming, not just the political world order. There needs to be a new religion in the world, a religion based on the universal principles that will emerge from theology. Not Maybe not put as nicely as that, Others did put it as nicely as that or even nicer. But they were interested in what this new faith is going to bring the world. In line with other thinkers as well, that the people of Israel and the land of Israel, but we don't, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a new religion, Sabbateanism. That's what it was calling for. Not just for the Jewish people, but for the world. And that's going to have impact a little bit down the line, but someone who does really express that idea really well is a more nomian figure with just a, just an antinomian tinge and who I have spoken about extensively elsewhere, and that, of course, is the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato. Now, he kind of is taking a whole range of strands of the things that we've spoken about over the last three and a half talks and he's welding them together and now that we've discussed these issues I mean the Ramchal makes a massive contribution a massive contribution to the messianic idea on the one hand the Ramchal's theology about these matters generally becomes the staple of mainstream Judaism going forward and certainly if you asked your, your average non-Hasidic modern orthodox to rabbi a theological question today 90% chance that they will find the answer ultimately for you in something that was taught by the Ramchal so on the one hand he's defining the theology but on the other hand the Ramchal's got a little naughty side and he also of course is dabbling in this and there's a whole cult around the Ramchal now the Ramchal also therefore <laughs> who it's a bit the Ramchal is not Anna Mashicha, although maybe, you know, late at night he might have whispered it, but he wasn't running around the world going, I'm the Messiah. But it was like he's like saying, Well, the Messiah's gotta be this, 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 and this. And when you look around, you know, you gotta wonder who it might be. Of course, the Mashiach for the Ramchal, the real Mashiach, is not actually, of course, 
Mashiach ben David or Mashiach ben Yosef. It's the one we spoke about uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's the Messianic Moses. It's Moshe as the deliverer of the new Torah, as in Moshe Chaim Lutzato. And uh, there are allusions in a number of places to the fact that the Ramchal himself was aware of these possibilities. Uh, but the Ramchal's own contribution to the idea is enormous. The Ramchal is basically telling you that what it is that draws redemptive power into the world are mitzvot. The mitzvot of the Torah, the mitzvot of performative Judaism is that which fixes the world and it transforms the world because it brings down redemptive energy. It's an influx into the world. That idea, of course, we're going to see paralleled elsewhere in the 18th century. That idea, the influence of the Ramchal's vision of that on uh, the Baal Shem Tov and subsequent Hasidic thinkers along those lines is uh, would be worthy of a study. But uh, the Ramchal's picture uh, begins to look like that. And if the Jewish people are fulfilling all the mitzvot, then that means that the <laughs> then the redemption depends really upon the actual state of the nation of Israel. What's their status? Where are they at? And that the establishment of a, of a Jewish state in the land of Israel, a, a population that are keeping the mitzvot, will line up everything in the Ramchal's great schematic, and it, which is very systemically aligned, and boom, everything suddenly slots into place, and you arrive at global divine consciousness. So work towards a state in the world where the people of Israel are in the land of Israel observing the Torah of Israel and global divine consciousness will fall into place. It's, it's, a, it's a seductive idea. And if you believe in the power of God and the power of the Torah and the power of the Jewish people to redeem the world, then he's right. That's what needs to happen. You need to work toward creating a world where that could happen. And you need to do it in a way that maintains faith with the performance of the mitzvot today. You can't say, I'll create that world and then I'll start keeping the mitzvot. I mean, when the Torah says don't kill, the Torah says don't kill. You can't say, oh, I'll bring about the state where the Messiah will come and then we'll worry about don't kill. No, you've got to be keeping the Torah. You can't say, oh, I'll set up my infrastructure and then I'll start keeping Shabbat. No. You've got to set up your infrastructure while you're keeping Shabbat. While you're keeping Shemitah. While you're keeping the mitzvot of the Torah. The Ramchal makes a very strong link between every single aspect. From the Torah in performance right up to the redemptive moment. It's all, he unifying all the cosmic and the real. It's all the same thing. And the Ramchal also, just, just one more minute on the Ramchal, even though I can see that, you know, 
but 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 the Ramchal also the Ramchal's got a lot of right, a lot of very mystical writing. I mean, on a, I mean, we're still we're still just at the seashore of understanding the Ramchal, and and when you look in uh, some of the, I mean, that that entire circle. Those guys in Italy in the first few decades of the 18th century, you know, the Ramchal, David Valle, all of these, uh, the, 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 all of that Hevra, obsessed by the redemption. But the Ramchal tells you that there is no spiritual system in the world that can exist without a root, a spiritual core. It has a root spark that keeps, sustains it. We know that. And the Ramchal reminds you that that spark is in Christianity. There must be something in Christianity that is a spark that keeps it going. There is a core truth. And the idea of Christianity itself, the essential idea of Christianity as it relates to the Torah, which is that ultimately the Torah of Din, the Torah of Judgment, the Torah of Law, is superseded by the Torah of Chesed, the law of divine grace. That has a root in holiness. And not only that, even the idea of the Sabbateans, that the Messiah must descend into the Klippa, even that, has a root in holiness. In the case of the Sabbateans, the Ramchal argues, he was never meant to do it with his body. He was only meant to do it with his soul. In the case of Christianity, the Ramchal would argue that at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> they, they had the right ideas, just was completely the wrong time and it, it hasn't happened yet because the world is still afflicted and waiting for that ultimate redemption. That leads on to a whole range of criteria by which you would know that redemption has happened. But if people are still bombing you, then it hasn't happened. And of course, the 18th century is reeling in other directions as well from the Sabbatean events. While the Ramchal is doing that, uh, a few hundred miles away in the Carpathian Mountains, they've got the Baal Shem Tov, and then the entire Hasidic movement and phenomenon that's going to follow in his wake. We <laughs> don't really have time to go into the whole redemptive idea of the Hasidic movement. It's a very complex field. But we can visit one location, uh, legendary location in the Baal Shem Tov's life. And everything about the Baal Shem Tov's life is shrouded in mystery and legend. But we have a very famous legend that the Baal Shem Tov reported that he made a meditative ascent to the Garden of Eden where he met the Messiah. And he said to Messiah, the famous words are also echoing a Talmudic passage there where the same questions was asked, but, you know, says to him, although in the Talmud they're asking it of Elijah the prophet, but here he's asking the Messiah himself and he goes, you know, Ematai, Emasai Kaasimar, Ematai Katemar, when is the master coming? And the famous answer that was given to him 
as a grounding of the entire uh, outward thrust of the Hasidic movement before, this is before the 19th century when it became an inward thrust. When your wellsprings shall spread forth to the outside. Now we have to understand what is the, what is what would the Baal Shem Tov or any of his followers understand by the terms your wellsprings? And then we'd have to look into Hasidic thought uh, to try and define at the end of the day what <laughs> what it is that is supposed to be spread outwards. And if we were to narrow it down, we could talk about a number of things. And once again, I've given entire talks on the Hasidic movement and tried to you know, essentialize what it is. It's never really successfully done. But I like the idea that if we look at it in this framework, in the framework of what the Ramchal was talking about and what others talk about, really we could say that Hasidic thought belongs to a category we call Ta'ame Mitzvot. The reasons why we do the mitzvot. In terms of servicing God, joy, identity, but also redemption. Whatever it is the Baal Shem Tov wants the Jewish people to do, he wants them to have a relationship with their Father in Heaven that is dependent upon the heart. That's the essential teaching, but it is at the end of the day a way of existing as a Jew in the world, and that is the reason why you do things, tying into all of the mystical reasons He's bringing the mystical reasons into emotive reality. But it belongs in the realm of Tame Mitzvot, why we are doing mitzvot. In other words, in other words, it forms a part of mystical consciousness. But mystical consciousness in a very emotionally engaged and practical way. In other words, be a real person, be an authentic person, have an authentic relationship with God. Your bridge to God is through the Torah, it's through the commandments you're giving, but you're approaching it uh, not just because it's the Torah and you have to, but because you want a relationship with God and that's where your life with God is going to be found. It's going to be found in the Torah because that's to where your soul is drawn. Although some would say, oh, that's a very strange way of encapsulating the message of the Baal Shem Tov, given that, you know, there's a whole emphasis on prayer and so on. It's all about the heart. Whether it's Torah, whether it's prayer, it's coming from the heart. And if we're talking about the Baal Shem Tov, and I can see the time, and I don't have many minutes now to uh, even just get through what I want to, but if we're talking about the Baal Shem Tov, then we're going to, you're immediately thinking, oh, David, remember false messiahs. Because we're not sure the Baal Shem Tov messianic consciousness in that entire existential revolution he's effecting is not a million miles from the Ramchal, but it's not really focused on the Messiah. The Messiah will come when God's ready to bring it. Our job is now is to take people out of their depressed state and put them in an exalted state of joy at the reality of being a soul in the world that can serve its creator. But the Baal Shem Tov had to deal with another very big Anna Mashicha of the 17th of the of the 18th century, who was, of course, a complete devolution from Shabtai Tzvi in the figure of Jacob Frank. 
And Jacob Frank, I mean, we've spoken elsewhere about Jacob Frank. He is a fascinating figure, a very naughty figure of antinomian on crack. I mean, he made he made Shabtai Tzvi look from. I am the spark of Edom, says Jacob Frank. You want to know the final spark in Edom? It's me. I'm the last of the Edomite messiahs. Uh, in fact, Jacob Frank uh, saw himself uh, not merely as a reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi, but basically a reincarnation of every Messiah so far, but particularly Jesus of Nazareth and so on. I mean, he his whole idea was really that the ultimate redemption is a synthesis of all religions around which it's always been fun to erect a cult. And that he did took hundreds of people into his synthesis of Judaism with Christianity, which uh, the church called Christianity, and uh, fought numerous debates. Uh, just uh, I, 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 not a great time for, for uh, you know, the, the messianic idea. A um, hundred years after Shabtai Tzvi, and someone running around Europe like a loon going, I'm actually the Messiah. It's amazing. It's a fantastic idea. I'm sure they had a lot of fun, a lot of good parties, but it didn't go anywhere, really. Although Frank's writings are interesting, so who knows? Who knows? And, and, and once again, you can see the Sabbatean idea in there that not only about sin, but also particularly about this idea that it's not so much a political revolution as the Messiah is a redemption of the religion and the faith itself. On the one hand, you've got rabbis like the Ramchal and the Baal Shem Tov wanting people to have a transformative experience through the mitzvot of the Torah. And you've got people like Nathan of Gaza, or Shabbatvi, Nathan of Gaza, Jacob Frank, who are saying, well, actually, we're going in the opposite direction. We're actually going to live as though the Torah has been superseded. The 18th century also brings us the Gaon of Vilna that I have spoken about elsewhere at numerous occasions. His lectures as recorded in the book, famous book Kol HaTor. Questions around Kol HaTor I understand, but the basic idea that emerges from that is that the last 500 years before the 6,000 years cycle in which the Messiah must come, uh, sorry, in which the Messiah must come, are created from uh, uh, a 500-year period that includes the Messiah Ben Joseph taking us up to 1990 and uh, the Messiah, son of David, which is the period 1990 to 2240, which is the year 6000. Uh, for those of you who are not sure where we're at right now, I think, believe it's 5781. So uh, 1990 was about uh, 31 years ago. Uh, and we achieved... In that time frame, from 1740 to 1990, we achieved the establishment of a Jewish state in the land of Israel. Kashmang, just as the Gaon of Vilna said needed to happen. And then the Gaon of Vilna says, then your next 250 years, between 1990 and 2240, that is the big synthesis of Torah and science. So that the perspective on reality of the world at large will perceive the essential nature of the Torah as being an inherent part of the universe. All right, that is still ahead of us, but who's to say? I mean, <laughs> we not many people were envisaging the world we're living in now a couple of hundred years ago, so 
We'll see. We'll see. What's the time? Okay, I'll just a few more minutes because it's, I mean, uh, you know, there are other Messianic projects of the 18th century that's still around with us. You know, for example, Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav, also another figure about whom there were whispers, although I certainly don't believe Rabbi Nachman would have ever proclaimed of himself, but he did write the Tikkun Klali because there was a growing feeling in the, uh, in over uh, quite a number of uh, centuries, and particularly since the Zohar highlighted this, is, uh, but it became very acute in the post-Lurianic as well. And uh, by the 18th century, uh, this was of great concern to some, by the 18th and certainly the 19th century, is that the, what was actually holding up the redemption, everything's happened, the sparks have been redeemed, it's all done. It's all done. The Jewish people have been in exile for long enough. The world's been in exile. It's awful. God's been in exile. Everything. Let's just get it over and done with. Let's bring the Purkana now. But, oh my gosh, everybody's masturbating. And, no, I wasn't talking about the people on the screen. I'm talking about in the 18th century, people were, people, (laughs) Kabbalists, Sorry, and spiritual leaders were very, very concerned that spilling seed and masturbation was stopping it. Someone like Rabbi, and, and you know what? <laughs> it weren't necessarily wrong. Not then and not now. It would be the view of people inside, say, those um, uh, inside uh, the framework of Rabbi Nachman, who repeatedly say, uh, at least once a day, the Tikkun Klali, which is uh, 10 particular psalms uh, from the book of Psalms, selected by Rabbi Nachman to say every day, to make a Tikkun uh, for that sin. And you'll see also, even if you look around now, you'll see people like that. All right, it's not amusing, but I seem to have amused someone here. Okay. Uh, I want to just make quick mention also, in a, for a minute, of the... Uh, of, of now, I, I, we're starting to get into the 20th century, and I want to um, just uh, touch upon a few things because otherwise you'll say, "Oh, you didn't talk about the 20th century." I told you we really needed several talks to do this properly. But the uh, I have spoken elsewhere. I think either in uh, Women in Jewish History, I spoke about her in the series Women in Jewish History. I spoke about the Maid of Ludmir. You can go and listen to that or look her up. And we spoke about the fact that when she got to Israel, um, there were quite a number of rumors that she was uh, dealing with uh, messianic, Kabbalistic practices, practices that were designed to, mystical practices to bring the Messiah that Kabbalists know about. Now, um, that has echoes, of course, of De La Reina going all the way back to the beginning of this talk. Uh, but I would imagine that she would have done it in a much more... Uh, Nomian way although it's interesting that at that time there is other discussions being had in other cultures and societies around the messianic idea and the special soul of the messiah to be brought into the world and we start to see Kabbalists and occult figures dabble with um, how you would actually bring that soul into the world in sexual praxis so we know, for example, there are all sorts of various positions uh, for fertilization, uh, the arrangements of the couple as they are, as, as, as uh, conception takes place, uh, that are symbolically informed and uh, allow 
um, couples to reach a very high state of meditative consciousness and ecstasy, not unlike uh, a number of the processes mentioned in, in tantric descriptions, except that here we've got a whole Jewish element of bringing the spirit of redemption into the world inside a special soul. But I want to talk for a minute uh, because there really I should have I should have, you know, allowed myself more time because the 20th century is more interesting than a lot of people realize. And we could spend perhaps even an entire other talk on just the messianic idea in 20th century Zionism. But I don't think there's any better expression of that than the famous essay that was delivered, the oration that was delivered by Rav Cook. And once you mention Rav Cook, you don't need any other bona fides if you're talking about Zionism from a spiritual perspective. Because Rav Cook famously gave a non-hesped, a non-eulogy for Herzl. And when I say a non-eulogy, it's because it was politically complicated for Rav Cook to eulogize Herzl directly. But Rav Cook attended a memorial service for Herzl a little later and delivered a talk in which he didn't really talk about Herzl, but it was very clear he was talking about Herzl. And it is during that talk that Rav Cook alludes to the idea, a very important idea, that Herzl was a representation, if not the one, but a representation of Mashiach ben Yosef, who is concerned with the redemptive spirit on a material level. And he basically takes the argument that we discussed before that had been brought, not, I mean, he takes the idea enunciated in the Ari, which was kind of distorted by Nathan of Gaza, but the idea that the messianic soul needs to emerge from or find itself within the outer world. But it has a dynamic movement towards the inner life of the Jewish people. It moves from the universal to the particular. Just as the redemptive spirit in the Jewish world moves outside as well. And the special soul uh, redeems the world from within the Jewish people, which is a movement outside. That would be Mashiach ben David. So the redemptive spirit is embodied in Mashiach ben Yosef. The redemptive reality is Mashiach ben David. And we also find that it's a little astonishing. I mean... You have to admit that if people in the early 16th century couldn't imagine how the Spanish expulsion could not be Hevle Mashiach, the birth pangs of the Messiah, then, I mean, they never, or, or people in the 17th century who saw Shmilniki massacres as Hevle Mashiach, it's difficult to understand how we don't see the Shoah 
in those terms, cosmically, although some have. Some have argued, some theologians, 20th century theologians, have pointed to the idea of the Shoah as Hevle uh, Mashiach. I mean, the only really, uh, the only theological perspective I've seen on the Shoah that I kind of would even begin to talk about would be Rav Soloveitchik's, and we've spoken about that elsewhere. But it's not yet appearing in um, the consciousness of the Shoah inside the engine room of Jewish apocalyptic mysticism or eschatological mysticism has not yet been made apparent which is itself quite remarkable and might reflect on, on, on perspectives on other times when people think that happened. I've obviously got now just less than 10 minutes and I, 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 I obviously want to talk about a couple of things and then I want to finish off because I know that everyone's wondering how would David finish a four-part series on the messianic idea uh, in, Jewish, in Jewish history? Uh, is it going to end with a full reveal? And I, uh, I uh, want to uh, take you to that point. It, it, it obviously would be uh, <laughs> a shortcoming of this talk <laughs> if I didn't uh, talk about... Um, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, whose followers were Da Malcolm, who are, not were, are, still, till today, Da Malcolm Mashiach on crack. That's, that's the Mashiach. And in fact, that's what the Rebbe was. He was nothing short of the Mashiach of the Rambam's Hilchot Melachim living in Crown Heights. I mentioned the Rambam Silchot Melachim last week, the Laws of Kings, the 12th chapter of the Laws of Kings of Maimonides, where he describes exactly who the Messiah should be. That's the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Ticks all the boxes. And he's living in New York. As far as we know, and I think this is fairly reliable, the Rebbe never said of himself, Anna Mashiach. There was plenty of Da Malka Mashiach going on, which is really the Rabbi Akiva form from his disciples, but there was no I am the Messiah coming from the Rebbe. There is, however, a famous story that I remember uh, being told when I was young that, uh, and I, I mean, when I was told this story, I was even given names, so, you know, it would have probably only happened, um, you know, maybe a decade or two, whatever, before, but uh, apparently one of the one of the older Hasidim, at some particularly intense for bringing over there in 770, went to the Rebbe and said, no, you know, reveal yourself already. Reveal yourself. Which, of course, ties into the whole special soul theory. Yep. And apparently the Rebbe didn't respond uh, terribly positively to that. I imagine that the Rebbe would have said to them, when he had the opportunity to say to them, he would have said to them, 
What's there to reveal? What have I not already revealed? That remains yet to be revealed. I spend every single minute of my waking consciousness in the leadership of Am Yisrael and its concerns. And when I'm not doing that directly, I'm delivering Torah. What more is there to reveal? But what are you doing? This is what I'm doing every single waking minute. Please tell me what I'm not doing and I'll do it. But what are you doing? Which uh, I'm not saying that the Rebbe gave them that speech, but I would imagine that that would be along the lines of what the Rebbe would respond to the request, you know, Galemar. When will the Master be revealed? If the Master is revealed, it's here. If I'm meant to be the Messiah, then it's here. You know what you have to do. The problem is, is that they didn't. There is a tension in Chabad between the emphasis in Chabad thought on working on oneself and through contemplation and prayer and working on uh, the sublimation of one's own ego as a form of service to God by, by self, you know. I mean, it's, it, it starts there, but it's a huge mystical apprehension. But the whole messianic stream, I mean, and, and people who believe that the Lubavitcher Rebbe is Messiah, yesh lehem al malismoch, you know, maybe, maybe. But for most people, once he died, then he was no longer the Messiah. A famous position taken by, you know, Berger, David Berger and others in the famous debates that followed the passing of the Rebbe uh, on the idea of whether the Messiah will ever come from the dead. Because most of the Rebbe's, many, many, uh, most, many of the Rebbe's followers believed that he was coming back, just as they believed in other former messiahs and still do in some cases that their chosen one is coming back. But, and who knows? I mean, the Rebbe, I don't believe, has actually ever entirely gone away, that's for sure, because he appears to people regularly, but not always in full consciousness. I was involved, I was fortunate to be involved in, and fortunate, I, I, I had the circumstances to be involved with a figure that uh, most of you probably would not have heard of, but was a figure who, um, I, I, I had the opportunity to see firsthand what happens around a serious messianic aspirant. Uh, I mean, it's no secret, you know, I was hanging out with Gorma in 2009, and Gorma was amazing. I mean, uh, uh, he would uh, wake up at six in the morning, blow shofar from his balcony in uh, Yamin Moshe. He would only eat uh, fig cakes, according to the, what's described as eaten by King David. He'd only drink water from the waters of the Gihon. I mean, with an amazing story cult developing around him and like other messianic figures also troubled by 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 mental affliction uh, he is no longer with us he like Hanoch, he disappeared uh, in 2012 but uh, I had the opportunity to see that firsthand and 
it's it's not a it's it's not a simple thing when uh, you it, it's a, it, messianic speculation is dangerous. I've I've seen that firsthand, but but particularly for the person that starts to think that maybe they are the one who is at the axis of the changes in reality. I think that it is astonishing. I mean, and of course, <laughs> so many messiahs are obsessed with messiahs that came before them. So Guma, for example, was obsessed with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Rebbe himself was obsessed with the concept of the Mashiach. These twin ideas of the redemptive spirit, and Rav Cook writes about this, he writes about the difference, the fundamental difference between Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. But if we take the redemptive spirit and we take the idea of the special soul, it's not enough just to be one or the other. There needs to be, to arrive in the world, a special soul at a special time who is endowed with a redemptive spirit. And what we truly understand from the idea of the waiting for Mashiach, because waiting for Mashiach... (laughs) Uh, has its own reward. But the key to understanding it is that it can happen in any generation. And if it can happen in any generation, then it can be any individual. God has made it very clear that he's not going to put parameters on who this person's going to be. It can be any individual in any generation. Any individual can be an expression of the redemptive spirit that transforms the world around them. And that's possibly the greatest contribution from the messianic idea in Jewish history is that that yearning, that nexus, that encounter with the unknown because we don't know on any day we wake up, is this the messianic moment? The endurance of that idea is the pulsating heart of Jewish continuity. The belief that we can make a better world, the belief that I can make a difference, not only a difference, but maybe every act I do is the ultimate difference. I don't feel special, but with Rucha de Purkana, even those of us who are not so special can transform the world at any time. And on that note, uh, we all pray that uh, when the Messiah comes today or the Messiah came tomorrow, or where the Messiah came yesterday, that uh, we should only ever see humanity progress towards greater and higher levels of divine consciousness uh, as they create the society they have the potential to create and the planet they have the potential to look after. And uh, may that all happen speedily and in our days. Thank you for following through this series with me. Uh, Obviously, there are questions that even I have on what I've spoken about, but hopefully it has uh, made sense of the generality of the messianic idea. Now let's just go and, uh, and fix the world. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook.
Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.